like a sort of a song and dance number. Yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah, yeah. Dancing. Dance fever, you know, Danny Terrio. Will it it be like uh, in Captain America? Will it be for war bonds? There might be some of that, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this podcast to bring you some incredible news. We are under attack. Never before has this reporter seen such devastation, such destruction. Ladies and gentlemen, I fear the time has come for Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules! So grab a can of fermented weed and listen up. It may just save your life. What do you want, Vincenzo? A testimonial from Count Dracula? Oh, get out! What is this out-out gal, get-out game we play? This nut thinks he is a vampire. He has killed four, maybe five women. He has drained every drop of blood from every one of them. Now, that is news, Vincenzo. News. And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. Welcome back, fear fiends, troglodytes, and ill-tempered beasts of burden to the second episode of Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules, the only podcast to attack pop culture from the fringe of sanity. I'm your host, Doug Arthur. Today's topic is Kolshak the Night Stalker, short-lived series on ABC from 1974 to 1975. Joining me today is my special guest, Rick Arthur, comic book artist for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, illustrator for newspapers and magazines, and blogger. He also happens to be my brother, but don't hold that against him. Thanks for joining us today. Before jumping into our discussion, I just wanted to remind you that you can reach the show via email at spacemules at yahoo.com. I might even read your well-crafted missive on a future episode. Also, please come join our Facebook page for uh, show notes, updates, photos, and more. Just search for Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules. And remember, you can't have assault without ass. And so, without further ado, episode two. Welcome to the second episode of Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules. My guest with me today is uh, Rick Arthur. Um, If the name sounds familiar, it's because he is, in fact, my brother. But uh, he's also done some other great things. Um, He's been a uh, comic book artist, uh, an illustrator, and uh, also um, recently wrapped up uh, work on a great a uh, great blog about uh, remaking modern myth, uh, and as it uh, pertained to the upcoming, at that point, upcoming Captain America movie. It's a really cool blog, um, and uh, maybe uh, uh, 
my brother can say hi to you fine folks and explain that a little bit more before we get going into our discussion of this week's topic, uh, the Night Stalker, which is near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, so, Rick, uh, say hi to the fine folks out there, and then uh, maybe you can uh, give us a little insight onto your Captain America blog that, that you uh, wor worked on recently. Oh, uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm, I'm Rick. I'm Doug's uh, brother. Uh, we grew up together, and uh, it's pretty surprising I, that we made it out alive. I think. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's uh, pretty surprising. Um, one of my recent projects has been a uh, Captain America blog, which is still out there, and you can still look at it. Um, and what's the official name of that blog? Uh, the official name of the blog is Captain America exclamation uh, point redefining modern myth. Uh, I worked on it with uh, Ben Alpe. He's the uh, film producer and filmmaker out in Los Angeles. Um, we basically spent uh, three years um, uh, trading emails back and forth to one another uh, regarding the origin of uh, Captain America and myth and how that fits into film and particularly screenwriting and filmmaking and how you would adapt uh material that has, uh, like Captain America, has 70 years worth of material, how would you adapt that into a movie? And so uh, we went about systematically looking at different pieces of uh, uh, cap lore and uh, creating um, film version. Uh, and when we were done, uh, we had so much material, we had hundreds of uh, thousands of uh, words of material. Uh, we decided we'd do something with it and make a blog out of it. Um, so we cut it into uh, bite-sized pieces, and uh, uh, which worked out pretty well because it was already in the email format. And um, we ended up with something extremely interesting uh, as far as uh, uh, looking at uh, Captain America in particular, but uh, myth and film uh, in general. Uh, it's a really good read. Uh, there's a lot of material, covers a lot of ground, moves in a lot of different directions. Uh, there's a lot of meat on that bone. Um, for people that are interested in going to look at it, it's uh, you can find it at uh, www.mythdiscussionseries.blogspot.com. That, that's quite a mouthful. Uh, I believe you also have a Facebook page for that. Uh, so if you're on Facebook, you can look that up on Facebook as well. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Very good. Uh, and I can personally attest that it's a, it's a really cool uh, blog, a lot of great discussion about the process of filmmaking and, uh, and adaptation, and um, especially as it pertains to modern mythology, and our modern mythology is really, you know, the superheroes that 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 came in the comic books, um, you know, starting in the in the late '30s with uh, Superman and Batman and, and Captain America in the early '40s. Um, so it's it's an interesting read, and I highly recommend it. Um, but we're not here to discuss that today um, in, in, in entirely. Uh, Rick and I are going to talk about one of our favorite childhood memories, which is uh, the ABC television show uh, The Night Stalkers, starring Darren McGavin. And uh, it really 
I think, shaped our lives a little bit, um, you know, when we look back on it. Uh, but we'll also discuss how it kind of, uh, for, for such a short-lived show, um, the influence it had beyond uh, its lifespan. Because um, it, it only lasted 20 episodes, which is, uh, which is pretty <laughs> minuscule when you think about it. But it, uh, it, really, uh, it really affected a lot of people. Um, so one of the things that uh, I want to kind of open this off with is, is maybe ask uh, Rick, um, you know, how, you know, what his uh, early memories of, uh, of Kolshak and, and, and the Night Stalker, like what, how does he remember hearing about it? How does he remember, uh, you know, what did he think of it at the time and, and so forth? And maybe, maybe you can share a little bit of that because, some of those experiences are shared by myself, but you're you're a few years older than I I am, so I, I think they have may, might have affected us a little bit differently uh, because of that age difference. I, I think I was what like seven or eight when the show <laughs> originally came on, so uh, you know I think my mind was a little more uh, uh, susceptible to uh, to that that kind of. Uh, uh, show, but but what are your memories? Um, well, first of all, I think the thing that's sort of difficult to wade through is the fact that uh, there there wasn't very much on television. Television is not uh, even close to resembling uh, what it's like today, where there's so many choices that um, you know it could take you. Uh, uh, quite a long time just just to flip through the channels. Uh, this was back in the day when there were only just uh, just a, a small handful of channels. They didn't always come in well. Um, you didn't necessarily hear about programs uh, beforehand or or get the buzz. Uh, uh, really, shows would just uh, come on, and then because there were only a few channels, you would click on it and, and see if you liked it. Um, with the the uh, Koshak, my my uh, biggest memory of that, strongest uh, memory of that is uh, the original movie, uh, which was the Night Stalker. And um, and and when that and when that movie came out, you were about the same age I was when the uh, series started. I think, um, you know. Yeah, yeah. That uh, that seems that seems about right. Um, and. Uh, it was not like anything else that was on television at the uh, at the time. I, I'd never really seen uh, a movie that was uh, like that with uh, characters that were like that, and uh, it really left a strong impression. Um, and uh, one of the, one of the greatest things about it was um, the uh, the music. Oh yeah, definitely. The uh, the theme music, uh, complete with the, uh, the whistling uh, theme music, was just absolutely scary, and still sends a little uh, shiver uh, down my spine when I hear it. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely one of my favorite TV themes of, of all time, and it's it's recognizable, and uh, it's it definitely it still gives chills. Uh, it does exactly what it's supposed to. Now, uh, I can I can see why. Uh, it had like such a, a big influence. Um, it was so different, and 
Um, at least in the beginning, it was much more uh, hardcore on uh, horror suspense, and a little bit uh, later in its run, it, it became kind of monster of the week. Uh, I, I don't think they really knew what they were doing with the material, um, or they could have, uh, you know, stretched it out for a longer run. Um, but uh, and and uh, by the way, I mean that was it only. Uh, if you told me that it only lasts for uh, uh, you know twenty episodes, I would say no, that's not right because it, it seemed like it, it lasted for a long time. Uh, and I think part of that was due to the fact that the the movies helped spread out the uh, spread out the joy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, uh, and 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 it, like I was starting to say back there, uh, you know. Darren McGavin shared your uh, uh, your assessment of the show because he the reason that the show got canceled and it was probably going to get canceled anyway because by the end of the first season the the ratings dwindled significantly from the beginning of the season. But he shared a lot of uh, concerns that it was turning into Monster of the Week and he didn't really want to do that and he had greater vision for the character of Carl Kolchak. Um, who, if, if for any of you out there listening who have never seen the show or have never heard of the show, uh, was a reporter uh, for. Uh, well, I, I think they made up the the newspaper. It was a what INS International News Service, uh, but for an international <laughs> news service, it had a pretty shabby uh, office. Um, but he basically investigated, uh, you know, he was an investigative reporter, and he wound up uh, stumbling across these uh, strange happenings and occurrences and would investigate them, and um, eventually they would, uh, you know, he'd wind up, uh, you know, uh, fending off the, the, the threat of whatever it was, and, uh, you know, uh, of course, the the authorities would want the story killed and uh, and covered up and so forth. And um, you know, so uh, if that sounds a lot like the X Files, uh, th there's good reason for that uh, too. But but uh, anyway, uh, McGavin really thought that they could go into delve more into the investigative reporting aspect of the character. And, you know, maybe have a monster show up every, you know, every couple of episodes, you know. Uh, but he thought that they could also maybe hit uh, more serious issues of the day um, because he was a reporter. He's going to be reporting on more than just, you know, uh, possible monster sightings. Uh, in, the monsters in the were actually uh, kind of like a sidelight that he wasn't supposed to be going into actually right. most of these stories he was told not to go after and he went after them anyway because he got some kind of a tip or a hunch right um but he, he did have regular assignments uh, that he was supposed to be doing <laughs> yes in fact it, it's funny in the in the first episode uh where he's on the trail of a jack the ripper type character uh, who may or may not have been Jack, the real Jack the Ripper, according to the story? Um, he got <laughs> he got uh, bumped down to the uh, Dear Emily column uh, because um, you know his editor uh, wanted him off the off the story. He he was you know uh, in uh, 
in a bad way with the police uh, who didn't want him on the story. So um, uh, his editor, uh, the great uh, Simon Oakland, who, who played uh, his editor, Tony Vincenzo. You're a 20-year veteran, Cole Jack. Now, what is the matter with your head? It's a smear. It's, it's pr you're practically accusing a man of murder. Ryder Bond, almost a god with some of the wealthiest, most powerful people in Chicago. God! Well, I didn't think about that. Maybe he's starting those fires by hurling thunderbolts. That is a rotten thing to say. Bond is a consummate artist, a genius. All right, Ron, fine, fine. Now, this isn't your story. Where's your assigned story? Nobody told you to write up these slanders. Uh, just, you know, bumped him down to the Dear Emily, uh, uh, you know, beat and, you know, answering... Uh, you know, questions from people. And it's funny, uh, but one of the letters he got actually uh, gave him a lead on solving the, the Jack the Ripper murder case in that first episode. Um, so it, it, it was kind of funny how that worked. But, but uh, same kind of deal like in the, f in the, in the original movie, uh, you know, it was actually set in Las Vegas and he was a reporter in Las Vegas. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, in the first one, it was a, a vampire, uh, that was attacking, uh, uh, you know, women and, and, and prostitutes, I guess, uh, what happened at the end of that one, uh, same kind of, same kind of deal, you know, he, he winds up, uh, killing the vampire, uh, in a struggle, um, but, the, the police kind of forced his hand and said, you know, we have lots of witnesses that show that you, you know, spiked this guy and we can bring you up on murder charges if you print this story. So they, they suppressed it that way. Um, and it was, uh, you know, those kinds of things uh, certainly later informed uh, the X-Files. I, I, I mean, the influence of the Night Stalker on the X-Files is pretty, pretty deep pretty direct actually uh, and very direct a um, lot of lot of crossover i mean it's the same, if you look at the boil it down to the the bare bones of the the concept it's virtually the same concept you you know in the x-files you've got the two agents who investigate these strange goings on and you know they always wind up you know getting suppressed or evidence is destroyed or lost at the end and they can't prove what happened you know Mulder and Kolshak are virtually the same, almost the same character in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and it's, uh, you know, Chris Carter, who created the X-Files, was definitely, uh, you know, was un unabashed in his uh, love for the, the, for the show. Um, and it really... They actually, uh, they actually put uh, Darren McGavin in the show. Yes, they did. Uh, and that was because... He actually had the idea. He wanted Kolchak. He wanted the character of Kolchak to appear on the X Files, um, and there was. It was one of those things that just kept going back and forth, and you know there were some rights issues, of course, but it also came down to McGavin himself, who said he really didn't want to redo the character. Uh, he loved the character, but he kind of felt like. You know, he wanted it kind of, to, yeah, he kind of wanted to let sleeping dogs lie kind of, kind of a thing. Uh, he did appear on the show, however, uh, as a different character, um, uh, kind of a precursor to Mulder on the X-Files. Uh, I want to say, what was, it, what was that character's name? I think it was Arthur Dales or something like that. Um, 
And, you know, so he appeared a couple of times as that character. Um, and that was, uh, that was pretty neat. Um, cause he, the, the Col- Kolshak was definitely a precursor to, you know, the X-Files and, and, uh, and Mulder character. And here on the X-Files, he was appearing as, uh, an FBI agent who had worked on kind of the precursor to the X-Files, you know, 30 or 40 years prior. And he was in his retirement and helping out Mulder and Scully with a, with a current case that echoed something that had gone on, you know, previously. So there a lot of crossover there. And then, uh, on top of that, after the X-Files went off the air a few years later in 2005, ABC actually tried to bring Night Stalker back as a as a series, and the producers of the show uh, was Frank Spotnitz, and I can't remember the other guy, but they were both producers on the X Files, and they were try, you know brought it back, um, and oddly enough that uh, that show got canceled after like six episodes. Um, it actually it was different from the original. I mean, there were some similarities. Uh, but it was different enough that, you know, it kind of was starting to stand on its own a little bit. Uh, my my biggest beef was that they, they canceled it mid-story. They had a story arc going, and they canceled it mid-story. And, uh, you know, you didn't get to see the uh, the, the, the finish of, of that story until it was a couple months later they actually put the second half of that uh story on iTunes to download that was the first opportunity to see it and eventually they you know put out the complete series box set um you know which included a few other episodes that were unaired at the time it got canceled um but uh anyway that's there's there's that connection there so it's definitely, uh, you know, something that had a, a wide influence. Um, it, you know, uh, because if you think back to that era, that was the the era of of Watergate, and uh, and so forth. So when that came out, uh, when the series premiered in 1974, we were, you know, the country was kind of knee deep in in uh, in Watergate. I think uh, it. The series actually premiered in September of 74, and Nixon had just resigned, you know, a couple of weeks before. It was the middle of August of 74, I believe, he he resigned and and left office. So, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, all of that investigative reporting was suddenly very hot um, and on the consciousness of of the country at the time. So um, it definitely made... uh, you know, made the concept of the of the of the story, uh, you know, much more out there. You know, uh, it was connected connected to the consciousness of of, of the nation at the time. So, uh, um, I don't know what what else. Uh, what what have you got to say? I've been rambling. <laughs> you just kind of let me go there, didn't you? Uh, I, I, I let you go, but uh, you had a lot of good information <laughs> to get out. Um, there were there were a few things uh, as far as influence goes um, that um, it was a, a different kind of a television television show um, as far as dealing with um, in, a, in a pretty pretty straightforward manner with the uh, supernatural. Um, that of course there had been other uh, series on before, but uh, 
this one was pretty straightforward. And um, as you had mentioned, uh, the way that it was framed was that this, uh, you know, just this average everyday kind of reporter who just had a curiosity to, to follow these leads would uh, come across these supernatural uh, uh, things. Sometimes uh, there would be UFOs uh, as well. <laughs> yep, yep. That was and, one um, of my favorites. Would, would, would uh, come across uh, these things and... The, the idea was that the, they were in our midst, mixing with our everyday life, and we just didn't quite see them. And it took somebody um, with a curiosity to look into it um, that you could find uh, these things. They were right there. They were in our towns, in our cities, um, and affecting real people, and not just, uh, not just the big cities, but small towns. And uh, also sports stadiums, if you remember the, the Aztec. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> starring the great Eric Estrada, no less, uh, you know, in that episode. He, he, I don't know if you remember that or knew that, but he was the guy that was uh, getting sacrificed or, or whatever. I, I haven't seen that episode in a while, so I'm, I'm a little hazy on the details. But he was in it. He was the, he was the, the boy that was going to get sacrificed, I believe. So... He was kind of the main uh, main character of that, but uh, that that kind of brings up another aspect that we need to talk about is all of the uh, guest stars that that were on that show. Just an amazing array of, of guest stars in, in such a short time. Um, you know, uh, Eric Estrada, obviously. Some some people before they were big bigger stars. Eric Estrada, uh, of course. Um, but even like in the second episode, the uh, the zombie episode, which still scary to this day uh oh yeah you know, that's, the, that's scary <laughs> the, the, you know uh i mean you've got scatman crothers in that episode uh and that's right around the time hong kong fuya was on uh you know saturday mornings uh, 1974 uh and and uh you know who else was in that episode was uh Antonio Farges, a.k.a. Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch. You know who I am, Mr. Cold Jack. Bernard Sweetstick Weldon. You once described me in an article as being the Duke of the Southside Numbers Fiefdom, an all-around civic headache. You remember now? No, that you, you know, that's a mistake. Now, that's my brother, uh, Marshall Cold Shack. Yeah, he's the one with the big mouth. Poppy and some of the other boys say you've been trying to place a numbers bet all day, but they say you're more interested in names than numbers, like Francois Edmonds. Public don't want to read about a young man cut down in his prime. Essentially playing the same kind of uh, pimped-out character he, he played in Starsky and Hutch, too, but, um, but just great uh, guest stars. Jim Backus was in an episode, and uh, Phil Silvers, and, um, you know, just... Just a great bunch of uh, a young Tom Skerritt is in one episode. He plays the guy that uh, transforms into the devil dog. He made the deal with the devil. I don't remember if you know if you remember that one, but uh, you know the guy turns into the 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 hound from hell at the end uh, of the episode. Um, and uh, there there were a bunch. There were a bunch of bunch of great guest stars on that on that show. Um, another, uh, interesting aspect too was, uh, 
that that we haven't brought up yet uh the script supervisor uh for the show and, and i think i brought this up to you when we were talking about this before and you were you were uh surprised um but the script supervisor on the show was uh david chase who went late who went on later to uh to do the sopranos amongst other things uh so this was a very early job for him and uh a lot of the humor that got injected into the Night Stalker is often credited to to his his hand in the script. Why, you look absolutely radiant. There's only one thing that puts that kind of sparkle into a woman's eyes. Baloney. Yeah, well, some call it that. Uh, although that mix of horror and humor was there in the original book by Jeff Rice. Um, you the know, Kolshak be, papers. The Kolshak papers, yes. Um, and the, the funny thing about that is uh, the Kolshak papers wasn't even published yet when they uh, when ABC decided to do the uh, the movie. Um, so, <laughs> just a little bit of interesting uh, interesting facts there. Um, uh, and, and the and the pedigree of the show uh, goes. Well beyond that, the the producer of the show was uh, Dan Curtis, and he was coming off of Dark Shadows. That was his um, that was his big uh, vampire soap opera uh, that he did from you know late '60s, early '70s, and it was going off the air. And he kind of jumped onto he got latched onto uh, this uh, movie, um, and uh, the television movie was a relatively new phenomenon at that time. It really started kind of in the mid-60s, late-60s. It didn't really, you know, it's not like today where, the, you know, you, well, you don't see them as much on the uh, networks anymore. But the, you know, Lifetime and, and so forth have kind of taken that over. But uh, for a long time, uh, starting with that early 70s, I mean, you started seeing made-for-television movies. Um, and up until the Night Stalker came out, uh, Brian's song was the biggest, uh, TV, you know, most watched TV movie uh, of all time. If, if, if that's a, a, of dubious, uh, distinction since it was such a short lived, uh, phenomenon, but, um, that you know, Kolshak shattered, shattered the record, uh, for, for ratings and actually, was the most watched TV movie up until uh, Roots came out and 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 beat it, uh, and that was you know what six six years later, I think that was like seventy seven seventy eight right so, so uh, you know now, uh, five or six years later, Darren McGavin had um, um, done the uh, original movie, yes, and had done was the. Uh, there was the Stalker, Night Stalker, and then there was Night Strangler. Right, the Night Stalker. So Night uh, Stalker was a vampire. Yep. And uh, Night Strangler was... Well, yeah, it, it, it just what, kind of a... Uh, I, don't know if there, I don't know if there was an actual uh, name for what that, what that guy was, but... Uh, essentially, uh, I, I think he, he killed young girls and took their essence to uh, give himself, uh, you know, immortality, uh, basically. <laughs> uh, but all right. But th that was so, that so was. Those were were two movies that came before the series uh, started. In right. between, in between those two movies, Darren McGavin did uh, um, 
movie for uh, the Six Million Dollar Man. That's right. That's right. Uh, which is. is also based on a, a book. There was uh, there yep. was quite a bit of uh, of uh, willingness at that time to to go to jump uh, right from a book to to making the um, television movie, uh, which they were you know preparing to uh, uh, make uh, features or series out of. Um, so that's what happened with the Six Million Dollar Man. And did uh, Darren McGavin appear in the Six Million Dollar Man series? I don't know. Um, because I, the, I didn't the Polshak that... series uh, starts in 74 and the Six Million Dollar Man um, movie was 73. Right. Uh, and I, I think I... his character might have been replaced or or not in the, on the... He had a pivotal role in the first movie. For a $6 million man. Yeah, I think he was one of the government uh, agency people that uh, I, I think eventually that kind of uh, role was taken over by Richard Anderson uh, as Oscar Goldman. I don't know if I my memory's not good enough to remember if he actually played Oscar Goldman when he was in the in the pilot film uh, or not. But um, yeah, McGavin appeared as he was in one of the he was in a governmental role at that at that point. And interesting to note, um, Richard Anderson uh, was the villain in the Night Strangler in the second, um, you know, Kolchak movie. Oh, I didn't I didn't remember that. Yeah, yeah, he was he was the Night Strangler. Uh, so that 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 was that other connection I, I asked you to remind me about uh, to tell you. Uh, so there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of other you know strange confluences there, um, you know. And and speaking of, of weird things, as this is just a quick aside. Uh, I mentioned Dan Curtis and and Dark Shadows um, earlier, uh, and uh, as you no doubt know uh, at this point, uh, Johnny Depp and Tim Burton are remaking Dark Shadows um, as a movie. They've they've already started filming it, and I've I've seen some production photos and stuff. What you may not know, I mean, there's there's a connection there between, you know, Dan Curtis, Dark Shadows, and Kolshak. Now, um, I was just, I've just been seeing stories that Johnny Depp is pushing hard to make a Kolshak movie. Uh, and so I, I think it's kind of oddly funny in a way that he's doing uh, Dark Shadows and now he wants to do, dark, uh, you know, Night Stalker. Which you know, there's a connection between the originals of those, um, you know, to begin with, with Dan Curtis and 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 so forth, and and now, uh, you know, Johnny Depp is kind of making that same, try, trying to make that same connection, um, and honestly, I I mean, I think he would probably Does it mean that uh, uh, Darren McGavin's character will be played by. Johnny Depp and have uh, dreadlocks like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, I I have a feeling that he would probably play it a little a little closer to, you know, the the original show. Uh, it sounds like he has uh, quite a bit of fondness and and love for the show, similar to what we have. Um, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure he would want to try to do it right. So, I'm I'm actually kind of hopeful that that's going to happen. The only problem. I, I see foresee with it is that uh, the company that's 
that's being shopped for the the rights to produce it is is Disney. So, you know, I, I kind of you know ease back in my chair just a little bit, <laughs> a little bit at that news. Yeah, I actually just did that as you said the. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're like, oh, okay. That could be amusing. It's Johnny Depp, but it's Disney. So anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that, but that's you know, there's. It's obvious that there's a lot of love for this character, uh, and and you know, um, it the the first two movies did great business, uh, you know, ratings wise. Uh, there was actually going to be a third movie, but uh, the plans for that did it didn't really work out. The the script. Um, didn't really meet up with the approval of uh, you know of the executives and at some point somebody got the great idea it was like well let's make let's make it a weekly show and that's kind of how it started uh, and they had to convince McGavin to come in and do a, you know a, a weekly show and uh, as I was alluding to before he, he by the end of that first season he was you know just kind of uh had a a little bit of a disdain for where the show was going and how it was turning out um and he actually asked to be released from his contract with two episodes left to shoot uh and because the rating and because and because the ratings were dying um they said okay we'll just cancel it now <laughs> so uh you know that's why that's why there's just an odd number of episodes there's 20 uh 20 episodes usually most series a full season was 22 to 23 episodes back in those days um so uh it's a it's a little bit of a shorter season as a result um interesting interestingly enough the scripts for the last two unfilmed episodes got turned into comic books there's actually a Night Stalker comic book that's being published by an independent publisher. I, I don't remember the name. It was like Moonstone. It's called uh, Moonstone uh, I, Comics. I do I do know it, and I actually know it pretty well. It's uh, Moonstone Comics. Yep. And um, I have a good friend, uh, Chris uh, Mills, who does a lot of the writing on those books. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, they're actually really nicely, uh, really nicely done. They go back to uh, the original uh, material, um, and they're dark and macabre, and um, very well done. Uh, Chris does a good job writing those books, um, and that's Moonstone uh, books. That's uh, that's ongoing. They, awesome. They're, they're still doing it. Awesome, right? Yeah, I haven't set foot in a comic shop in a while, so I'm <laughs> I'm a little out of sorts with that. Uh, I have some uh, I have some sample. Oh, cool. artwork from it uh, somewhere in the archives here, uh, from the from the Moonstone comics. Very cool. So I'll have to I'll have to send some on. I'll have to check that out. That was something interesting that I came across in my uh, in my research, was that there was actually a a, a comic book which I was unaware of. So. Um, again, that kind of goes speaks to longevity well, and the influence. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, for how many other shows that lasted less than a season back in the '70s is, is there still this much love for? Uh, you know, the, the the mix of the horror and the humor 
which had been done before to some extent, but this was a this was a different mix. I mean, it you know when you go back to look at the mix of horror and humor, you know, in the annals of of you know film history, movie history, and and so forth. I mean, you can go back to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein uh, for that, but that was that was played more for laughs that was very slapsticky uh with you know a few thrills and chills thrown in but it was basically all done for laughs uh this was different this was thrills and chills with some humor kind of thrown in unexpectedly um and and i think you know for, for my memory it's really one of the first shows that really had that that mix uh right it was um a, a lot of uh, i understand what you're talking about right a, a lot of uh, a lot of it had to do with the uh, the character of kolshak himself but also his interaction with uh, his editor vincenzo yep, yep and uh the other members there were a few other uh little regulars uh on the staff of the newspaper uh, right. Uh, what was with? Up, up um, Dyke? Uh, but, but, but he always had these, he always, uh, there was always room for a little bit of funny moments. And then uh, there would be funny moments, uh, unintended, where he'd like, he'd, he'd have a plan where he was supposed to execute this plan to, uh, to, to kill it or drive it away or, or exercise it or whatever. And something would go wrong. And he'd have to improvise, and there was some kind of a little bit of bumbling, um, but it always brought back uh, kind of an everyman sort yes. of like fear yes. of being caught in the headlights, sort of a, a thing. Very and, much. Uh, McGavin had that ability to very nimbly uh, go between dramatic and comic. If you look at the very excellent uh, opening sequence for the uh, Kolshak series. Right. Uh, it's very simple, and a lot of uh, people should really study this because it's, right. it's got a, it packs a lot into a short uh, space. You, you get to know his character very completely, a snapshot glimpse just from this. He comes in, grabs a cup of coffee, He's very like loose and relaxed. Yep. And, he he both, even you know he throws his hat onto the, the throws his hat on. Misses it, doesn't care. Right. Um, <laughs> sits down to type the first word. You know, sits down to type. You see him typing, and then it turns to the point of view of his character, where you actually see what the character sees, and the first word that that he types is victim, and then it goes back to a general shot of him typing. He gets more serious as he's typing out this, this story. Yep. Um, and then there'll be phrases, little phrases of, uh, things that you'll see, uh, as you know, a typewriter and not a word processor. Right. Right. Uh, okay. uh, the keys hit the page and it's very dramatic. And at the end of it, um, the lights flicker, the fan stops uh, moving, the uh, the uh, clock, the hands on the clocks stop. Yep. And the he turns in terror. He's afraid. He's he turns in terror at that minute, and the camera stops and freezes it. 
<laughs> yeah, like right there. He's frozen in half turn to see like what's there. And and and, and that, that's that's the series. Yep. Uh, and I've series. I've watched a few episodes in the last uh, week or so. And and the the other thing too is that that they changed the lighting dramatically. Like uh, all of a sudden, you know, the the overhead lights, uh, the the light coming in from the windows stops, and they suddenly turn this. Uh, kind of spotlight underneath it a kind of an up light on his face and it casts those great shadows when you have that that up light on 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 a person's face it's very dramatic and so it, the lighting like changes so and, uh, it, McGavin is McGavin is able to pull off this transformation and uh very the much. atmospherics of uh the lighting that uh you're talking about uh plus the music very scary. It it's it's, a, it's very like great. I said, it's one of the greatest theme songs for a TV show ever. I, I mean, I, yeah, I totally agree with that. It, be, and because uh, of what you said, I mean, it changes it. It changes the mood. It gives you everything you need to know about the character. It starts off, you know, with him whistling and carefree, and then it just suddenly changes. <laughs> it's very <laughs> dramatic. Very suspenseful. Um, you know, uh, and and the the, um, the composer uh, uh, Gil, I I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Gil Mel or Gil Mealy or something. I I apologize. It's Okay, Gil Melay. Uh He was well known for throwing in electronics into his uh, scores, and. Um, you know, there's a there's a little bit of that, a little hint of that at at the end of that score, a little bit yeah. of the that screeching and wailing uh, noise that that comes in. It's um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, you eerie, know that. Pretty eerie. You know, so so very very effective opening sequence for a show. Uh, you know, in, in uh, one of my favorites certainly. Um, and I think so. Uh, so uh, this was how they were able to pull pull the show off. Exactly. Uh, at all. They were they were able to present. McGavin McGavin yeah. has such a huge uh, um, history of uh, doing different types of shows, be it westerns or uh, um, you know all different kinds of movies. Up until the, the time that he stepped into the Kolchak role, he, he was he was very able to to fit in and become that kind of uh, everyman. Uh, don't forget, he's he's the guy that played the father on that uh, Christmas show. Oh yeah, yeah, and that was only you know ten years ten years later. He he was the dad on Christmas Story. Yep, uh, another another favorite, and he was in uh, The Natural too. A very uh, he was kind of like was the... uncredited in The Natural. If you look in the credits, he's oh really? There, I didn't. I, didn't, yeah, I, didn't I was surprised that. by that. Uh, hmm. There was a uh, contract dispute as to where to place him on the credits, and finally he just got upset with his agent and said, put me in the movie, let me do my lines, pay me what you want to pay me, take my name off the credits. Yeah, he's, he, he was very much, uh, from what I've read and, and so forth, he was very much... Uh, you know, no nonsense, working class uh, kind of guy. Uh, you know, he just, you know, he liked to do his work and and move on, and, and all the rest of that, you know, nonsense could could go by the wayside as far as he was concerned. <laughs> so, yeah. now there's a wonderful uh, 
a little piece, which actually I don't know if there's a clip of it uh, anywhere out in the uh, uh, internet. Of um, and I remember this. This came after uh, Koshak. This would have been in 1977, and the series was in uh, 74, 75. Uh, yes, 74, 75. So, yeah. so in uh, 1977, he appeared on the Mike Douglas show, which was a popular talk show at that time. And he talked about uh, several different things, and at the end of which, he gave a dramatic reading of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, and it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> it was so dramatic and so scary. Um, and this was daytime TV. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I remember watching that. We'd come home from school, and uh, after the cartoons, it would be on at, like, 4 o'clock. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so if you, anybody ever had any uh, uh, notion that uh, McGavin was a, kind of a comedic actor or, or, you know, wasn't up to d- doing dramatic work, um, if you just looked at the telltale heart that he, he did this dramatic reading of, uh, you, you would never think that this guy is this guy can slip into any uh, any role, and that's what made his Koshak character so strong. Uh, he slipped into this kind of everyman role, this reporter with a curiosity. Uh, he would follow the leads that most people would crumple up and throw in the wastebasket, and. Um, they would lead him to these dramatic situations. And then he had, uh, you know, if his reactions weren't strong enough to these supposedly, you know, supernatural things, we would all just laugh and uh, the series would have died much sooner. (laughs) Very Uh, true. But we ended up with some, uh, on one end of the spectrum, we ended up with, uh, um, you know, the Night Stalker uh, movie, and then on the other end, we, we ended up with some uh, episodes of the show where he, he was chasing a, a seaweed monster down in a sewer. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, that was um, the, 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 that was, that's one of my favorite episodes, actually, the, the Spanish Moss Murders. Or Gasso was. Uh, yeah, that was, um, that was a great episode. Uh, the, that was the one with the... Um, the, well, was, that was a much more comedic. I was giving uh, in terms that was a much more comedic episode. Right. It was still one of my favorites. Um, you know, and uh, that uh, that was the one where the the students were doing the sleep study and they were kind of creating and controlling this monster or something, as I recall. Uh, yeah, or, I think uh, I think they had just invented Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> So they were doing these sleep studies. Yeah, yeah, I think I think but that's they right. had a there, there were a lot of there were a lot of uh, in the short period of time, which is why, uh, looking back in my memory, even then I was like, well, this is more than it seemed like more than a season, but it wasn't. Right. That uh, they had a lot of interesting um, episodes. They dealt with uh, vampires. They dealt with uh, Jack the Ripper. They dealt with. Uh, you know, swamp monsters, uh, werewolves, aliens, uh, aliens. Uh, the Aztec. They dealt with the uh, Aztec uh, myths. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, hounds from hell uh, in one episode. Uh, so uh, hell, didn't they have like some? Uh, uh, there was uh, a witch in one episode and uh, uh, a succubus. 
Yeah. Succubus. Yeah, a succubus. Um, what else? Uh, oh, he. There was a. Wasn't there one episode where he battled like a, a robot, uh, an android that had gone uh, that had gone rogue. <laughs> uh, I, I, not. I. I don't recall that being a very strong episode, even even then. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it was, it was all all over the place. There was some uh, Native American mythology that they explored, um, which and, again was unusual for the. Oh time. yeah, like definitely. That, wasn't done, that just wasn't done, um, um, and they went they went in a a lot of different directions and uh, uh, explored a lot of different things. And you know, if you want to go back to the X Files again, um, X Files. Once it settled down into its, uh, uh, you know, what it what it was going to become, uh, really it was a lot like, uh, really it was a lot like Kolchak or having Kolchak as a, the, the basis um, for it. That they would go into a lot of different uh, directions. It wasn't uh, they only chased uh, black uh, ooze, you know. Right. Well, sometimes it seemed that way. <laughs> um, but they had a. There was an episode with a, a headless motorcycle. Ride. Oh God! Yeah, I rem- And and uh, yes, I re- that was that uh, episode. I remember scaring me uh, to death. Of course, you know, like I said, I was what seven or eight. Um, and, and you know what? What were mom and dad thinking? Letting us stay up on Friday nights to watch this show. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think that's the only thing that saved us was that it was a Friday night, so it wasn't a school night, so we were allowed to stay up. Uh, but, I, I mean, I honestly don't know. <laughs> you know, we were watching, uh, you know, these these uh, horrendous uh, things. I, I mean, although this was old school uh, horror, they didn't really show a lot of gore or, or but, that uh, sort of thing. To, to be fair, uh, a lot of the dramatic stuff was done... Uh, very well as, yeah. far as, as far as being being scary the music was terrifying um, and these things had never really been seen before so it's not like now where you're saturated with it and you have so many choices of well do I want to do I want to be scared this way do I want to be scared that way there was nothing there was right. nothing like it right. um, up until that time and, uh, yeah, exactly. And and a quick note about that episode too was uh, it it marks one of the very first uh, scripts that was written by uh, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale. Um, <laughs> I, I I know I mentioned that to you the other day, and you were like, "Whoa, I never knew that." But uh, yeah, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale wrote that episode, um, and of course they later went on to great fame. Uh, you know, doing. Uh, you know, Back to the Future and, uh, you know, some of those other movies. Used Cars with Kurt Russell. Do you remember that one? That was one of their early uh, features. Uh, you know, of course, now they're they're giving us all, all that uh, CGI motion capture stuff, Beowulf and, uh, and so forth. But anyway, I digress. So, again, another another uh, Kolshak connection to, uh, to greatness. Um, well, if I had to, uh, if I had to pick... Um, certain scenes or images out of the Kolshak series um, that I really remember right. that really um, either are scary or memorable. Um, for one, it would be 
the opening sequence that we had talked about. Yep. Uh, it's just so memorable uh, and scary um, that that you it's like burned into your brain. Totally, totally agreed. Yep. Um, also, there is a there's a uh, sequence. There's a uh, an episode where he goes after a zombie. Yeah, and he's he's very skeptical, but he goes and he talks to the the voodoo priestess, and uh, she tells him what to do and all this. Um, there's a scene toward the end of that, which I will never forget as long as I live. <laughs> of uh, he's he's trying to sew some salt inside the mouth of the zombie. Yep. And this is actually one of the episodes I watched last week, uh, and it, it's still scary to this day. And and the uh, he's trying to sew salt into the mouth of this zombie, and the zombie is is uh, motionless, and he's just kind of got a thread and some some uh, a needle. Well, well um, the thing the thing of it was just to set the scene a little more. It was uh, the the, the the uh, the voodoo priestess there uh, told him that the body would probably be in some kind of uh, place for you know dead where dead things go uh, you know <laughs> typically it's some kind of a mausoleum or whatever uh, but as it turned out um, this zombie had kind of taken up residence inside of a uh, an abandoned hearse in a junkyard for dead cars so there was kind of a you know a, a, you know a metaphor there that was going on that i didn't obviously didn't catch when i was seven or eight but watching it now i'm like oh that makes perfect sense um <laughs> but it, he so he the zombie is kind of laying down in the back end of this hearse now this is not the kind of zombie that most kids today are used to this is not the brain-eating uh, you know, I'm going to bite you and you're going to turn into a zombie kind of zombie. This is a more traditional uh, zombie from from actual voodoo uh, mythology, uh, controlled by a master um, and and so usually forth. To, usually to uh, um, take revenge take on revenge, the yes. master's uh, enemies. Yep. So, somebody would be uh, uh, awakened from the, from the dead and uh, sent out to... to uh, Exactly. Murders. So he's in the back of this hearse, uh, and it's a very confined space. And the zombie is laid out, and he's he's, you know, shaking, uh, you know, setting up the candles that he's got. He's she told him he she had to he had to set up candles, and he's his hand is like shaking. You can see it shaking as he's trying to pour the salt, and he's fumbling with all of the his little tools, and he's got this giant like hook of a needle that he he's trying to sew up the 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 lips of this zombie because that's what you know she told him that he had to do was put, to, the, put the salt in its mouth and then sew the salt, salt inside the mouth and uh you know that sequence is just it it, it still was very suspenseful very uh spine spine tingling I think that they shot most of that without any sound, no background music. That's, you know, that's one thing I noticed about a lot of those early shows. Um, 
even you know Emily and I uh, there's a TV station that we watch sometimes called Retro TV and it, we were watching like Rockford Files and some of those early like 70s mid 70s shows and I was actually surprised at how little incidental background music there was for a lot of the, for a lot of sequences but in this case it made it very effective there was no sound it was just there was no music it was just the sound of him kind of fumbling around uh, in the back of this hearse, you know, and and, and and it didn't need that music to be scary. The, in fact, the <laughs> lack of the lack of music made it scarier um, in a way because it, it was the music wasn't cueing you. You were like cueing yourself. You're and, and you're so you're so uh, used to having that musical cue. Um, which is always one of the things that, that bothers me sometimes with, with movies. It's like uh, you can tell something's about to happen because the music is swelling. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, you know and, and, and then it has that climax when something happens. Well, but the, this, there was no music. And, yeah, and you're just like, what? Something that happened in this case Yes. Um, is that he was not complete. He did not complete his task. No, he did not. <laughs> he, uh, he, he was probably about two-thirds of the way through, and you're thinking, you're watching, and you're like, oh, he's almost finished. He, yeah. And the eyes of the zombie pop open. And I jumped out of my chair the first time I saw it. <laughs> and, uh, like, every additional time that I've seen it, I've also been shocked. Yes. Just, even though I know it's coming. Uh, that's how strong it was. That that um, was. A then he big... goes on. He's got to defeat this zombie in some other way, other than the traditional way. Yep. Uh, and he he ends up finding a solution, uh, where a solution finds <laughs> finds. Him. Yes. Well, there was one other way that uh, you could kill a zombie uh, that that was that was given to uh, given to him, and he. He uh, was able to get a Plan B uh, <laughs> in action, um, you know, in part because of the setting uh, uh, being in the junkyard. But I'll leave it at that for those of you who want to go out and actually watch this. It's uh, pretty sure it's on Netflix, um, so go get it. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, we, we, we've been rambling here and I want to make sure we cover everything we wanted to cover. Uh, we're almost at the hour mark here. So, um, is there any, anything else that, uh, you want to say about, uh, the Night Stalker, Cole Shack, uh, before we start to wrap it up or, um, oh, no, I, I understand. Um, no, not, not really just that, uh, um, Basically, you know, the, the show, the Kolshak uh, Night Stalker show, was a, a very good show. It was uh, short-lived. Uh, had a strong start. It had two really good uh, movies to, to, to kick it off. And then the start of the series um, uh, was really good. Um, it, it sort of uh, went downhill, which is unfortunate in its uh, short time. Um, but it, it leaves behind, like, a lot of really strong performances and strong images uh which you normally don't get from like a b level um you know tv show (laughs) i mean this had like a lot of really like uh uh, the scary stuff was scary the funny stuff was funny right uh and the characters were great the characters the the characters were great i mean Uh, vincenzo is fantastic (laughs) the the interaction between kolchak and vincenzo is just uh 
amazing. It, it it's really uh, he had to uh, he had to be able to chastise him and nudgingly give him permission without giving him permission to go it, do exactly what he's gonna do exactly because uh, you kind of got the feeling over the course of the series that Vincenzo was. Uh, very much a skeptic, but he he was also like a true reporter, wanted to find out. And Kolchak was like a purebred. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he, he really had his nose for the news and wanted to find out the facts. Yep, exactly. So uh, that made us as a viewer want to find out. Exactly, and uh, uh, just his enthusiasm pushed us, uh, thrust us through uh, these stories. Uh, which would not have happened with a lesser performance or lesser characters. What are you guys pointing at? You can't see anything anyway. Listen, I can stop it. Stop it? Stop what? I don't know, but whatever it is, it can't stand light. Listen, I was alone with it in here, and I stopped it with this. It was looking at maps. Map, maps? Kind of maps, maps. Star maps. Look up there. You look, see galaxies. See, look over there. But there's nothing over there. I don't see anything. Anybody see anything? Huh? What, what do you see, Culture? I don't see any either, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing there. Oh, somebody throw a net over Kolchak, will you? I think he's about ready for the rubber room. So, uh, I mean, for me, you mentioned, uh, just real quick before we wrap it up, um, you mentioned the the uh, zombie episode, that, and that sequence is truly, you know, brilliant. I'm getting a little bit of a, you know... My hair standing <laughs> thinking about it. Uh, but uh, as far as other um, moments that are memorable for for me, my one of my favorite sequences um, is from the very first episode, the Jack the Ripper episode that uh, we talked a, a little bit about before. Uh, he tracks down where this guy lives based on one of those dear Emily letters that he had been uh, forced to answer. Uh, and so he, he goes to the, the house and he's, uh, he winds up getting, uh, you know, looking for evidence, discovers that yes, indeed, this is what the house where Jack lives. And he, before he can leave the house, he's, uh, he's caught basically. He's caught in, uh, being in the house and uh he winds up hiding in the closet uh and you know jack the ripper comes in and he's you know takes his his cape off and <laughs> they had jack the ripper basically still wearing his you know 1880s garb uh for the show it was kind of a little bit silly in that way but he's taking off his his coat and his his cape and he's hanging them up in the closet and kolshak's in the closet like just you know, inches away from this guy, yeah. <laughs> from his, from his yeah. hand. And he's just like, you can see the, 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 you know, the, the, the tension on his face and, and uh, the scare. And, uh, it very much reminded me when I was watching it again, it reminded me very much of the scene at the end of Halloween, uh, where Jamie Lee Curtis is in the closet and Michael Myers is, you know, reaching in, uh, although, you know, he knew that she was in there. Jack the Ripper at this point didn't know that Kolshak was in the closet, um, you know, hiding. <laughs> but, it, but it was very similar scene. It was very similarly lit. Um, and the tension was there. But the funny thing with that is that, uh, you know, Kolshak finally is so... 
you know, if he had been able to keep his composure, he might have still been able to, you know, hang out in the closet for a little while for a better time. But he got so freaked out and scared that he actually screamed in terror and and jumped out and, and you know, ran out of the room before, you know, the, the, the Ripper could figure out what the hell was going on. Now, now what's great about this, of course, is that... Um, he reacted in a way that a normal, you know, hero Ex- would. Exactly. No, normal hero never show fear, no. never scream, never run away. Um, exactly. He was. He was he just, terrified. He, said, he was, was a, as terrified as the audience. Yeah. And and you know and and acted like you know the audience would have, uh, you know, running away screaming basically. <laughs> um, you know. But and this, uh, this again shows his appeal as the everyman reporter who's looking for uh, the truth of the story. Exactly. Um, exactly. Just uh, you're right, though. A nice little scene where the uh, uh, you know he's taking his cape off and everything. It's very very nicely done. Uh, they had a lot of nice uh, moments like that where they put uh, put scenes together uh, to create the. Um, drama and the tension yep, yep. and they, they um, see, he seemed to spend a lot of time in the closet because I, I seem to recall there was a similar scene in the in the werewolf episode if if you remember that he uh it was on board a, a cruise ship uh and the captain of the cruise ship was a werewolf and uh he remember he he broke into the um he broke into the, the somebody's uh bedroom uh well, no, actually, it, it, the captain wasn't the werewolf. It, it was just a passenger, I think. But the captain had silver buttons on his uh, coat, yeah, and Kolshak so- broke into his room in, to get in the, and got into the closet to steal the buttons so he could melt them down and make a silver bullet. <laughs> <laughs> and and he got stuck in the closet in that episode too, as I recall, because the captain came in and he, you know, um, was stuck there. But it just, you know. <laughs> just funny, uh, funny things like that. Um, well, I think that it's happening. De- I think that it was deliberate on the part of the uh, um, people making the show that he would be caught. He wouldn't be able to move freely all the time. That he would be stuck, and at certain points he would be stuck, so that the um, the viewers would also feel that trapped confinement. Um, feeling that terror building as you're stuck and you're you have uh, you're powerless yep um so i think they would do that from time to time to put him in that situation uh and again you know with his uh, reaction reactions also helping to build the the mood and the terror um a lesser actor uh, you wouldn't have cared oh he's in the closet he's in the guy's got a cape on. Yeah, we'll we'll wait till it's over. McGavin, he sucks you in with his performance, and you are afraid with him. You're afraid for him. You don't know what's going to happen. And then they treat you by having him act in a non-traditional way. He yeah. he he screams. He runs out. He doesn't do what you expect him to do. Um, he acts more like an everyday person. And yep. that makes it all the more, you know, real. That makes it uh, more real situation. Very true. Very true. So, 
All right, real quick uh, before we wrap this up, and I've said that again. <laughs> I I have I think this podcast is going to wind up being this rambling uh, show. I, I I don't know that I have the ability to to contain maybe, myself uh, to a we'll, half an hour. <laughs> maybe we'll make a series out of it. Yeah, who knows? But uh, just other than the uh, Ripper and the zombie episode, what what was probably uh, your favorite episode? Um, other than those two um, that you can recall, which which one do you think had the most uh, impact and influence on you? Well, actually, uh, I, I didn't really think about things in those terms, you know, back when I was 10. Um, collectively, they had quite a wallop and an impact. Um, but I do remember uh, the Aztec one because okay. it was it was very different than the other ones uh in that particular show uh you didn't really know who you were rooting for you, you didn't know what was going on um i didn't understand what the the, the aztec uh connection was um did not you know understand the the basic uh, history of it um and so i just watched it cold and it was different than all the other ones. It was different than Ripper. It was different than the Vampire. It was different than the Zombie. Uh, it was a different kind of story. And when he ended up in that stadium, um, it, it's funny what things scare you. Because uh, I'm not particularly scared of stadiums. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, right. But uh, he ends up in that stadium. And I, I don't remember if it was one of those things where whatever had to happen when when daylight broke or or i don't remember if, like, yeah i haven't seen that one in a while there was something about the moon lining up at midnight at, you know on the and he had know, to be like so many steps so many steps up the stadium yeah four steps up the stadium and he's in this huge stadium trying to find where basically he's trying to find where this killer will be or where this this uh, sacrifice will take place so he can stop it or you know be there and just the idea of it that he's he's in this stadium all by himself and he he's trying to find out the exact spot where to go <laughs> where the killer's gonna be yep yep and uh uh it was just very scary to see him going around this empty stadium. And I, I think, of course, in typical, uh, typical uh, Kolshak fashion, he goes to the wrong section uh, and then has to go go back. Um, uh, but but it, it left an impression on, on me because, uh, because it was scary and I didn't understand uh, at that time. Um, of course, I understand now, but I didn't understand what was happening. And it, it was also a very different kind of story than... Uh, some of the other ones. Uh, I think in this one, in the Aztec one, the, the character who is sacrificed, uh, there's like kind of conflicts with that character. Like you don't understand what the character's motivations are. Uh, in the story, um, the character is like given a year or more of like bounty, like everything that he could possibly want at the end of which he's supposed to sacrifice. Uh, and then of course he, he doesn't want, <laughs> he doesn't want to <laughs> at the end. Um, 
but as a kid, I didn't understand that at all. Uh, it was just good and scary yep, uh, yep. and different, e- even from the other stories that they were uh, kind of telling. So uh, that one stuck out with me, even though it was probably like not the best uh, episode or the scariest. It was probably one of the more uh, unique uh, stories. Very true. I mean, for me, uh, that's that goes a long way towards um, you know what what I my feelings. I mean, I, the traditional monster episodes certainly were were good. You know, the zombie episode and and, and so forth. But uh, the ones that that seem to scare me the most, or I I remember most, um, the the uh, invisible alien episode uh, was. You know what was one that I thought about a lot as a kid, <laughs> uh, and and also the 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 motorcycle, the headless motorcycle one. I I don't know why that one particularly scared me as much as it did uh, as a kid, but it just seemed uh, it just seemed more uh, quote unquote realistic uh, to a, to an eight year old <laughs> than, than some of the other, than some of the other concepts. But, but yeah, the, the invisible alien one, um, you know, where they, they, they suck the bone marrow out of its victims, oh, uh, yeah. you know, and they're really just searching for a way home. I mean, at the end of that, uh, he tracks them down to a planetarium, uh, where they basically take over the planetarium and, and, and to try to, you know, find a map to the way home for for them, and then, <laughs> you know, it, it, but the the way it was done uh, it was so well done. Um, you know, obviously looking at it now, you you can tell they were just using uh, you know a lot of high power fans and and spotlights and stuff, but they really made it. Uh, you know, the, the effects for for the budget they were on and what they were trying to do were, were actually pretty good. Um, you know, the minimalism, uh, the minimalistic approach to, to that was definitely uh, the way to go. Made it scarier, for sure. So, anyway, <laughs> on that note, uh, I think we might uh, try to wrap this up. Um, once again, my guest today uh, was the uh, great Rick Arthur, who... Uh, despite being my brother, uh, also has a career beyond that. Uh, as as a uh, comic book artist, uh, working on on such things as uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, an illustrator uh, for for newspapers and magazines, and uh, most recently uh, was a co-author of a a really great blog uh, about uh, developing Captain America into movie form uh, from from uh, kind of the modern mythological sources. Um, uh, with a collaborator, uh, filmmaker, uh, Ben Elby. Yes, yes. Uh, um, another talented young man. <laughs> uh, so that'll, that'll do it uh, this week. Um, so thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, not sure what my topic is going to be yet. I've got a few things on the table, but uh, I'm sure it'll be good. Uh, we'll talk to you soon and uh, say good night, Gracie. Good night, Gracie. Yeah, there. Somebody finally got the cue. All right, <laughs> we'll talk to you later. So that's it. The book's finished, and now you'll have to judge for yourself. I must warn you, however, if you try to verify this account, you will find it quite impossible.
Item, in Washington, D.C., there was no longer a file listing the suspect under his true name or any of his alleged aliases. Item, in Las Vegas, all of those who were involved have either left town, aren't talking, or are dead. I haven't had a decent night's sleep since all this happened. And now you might find it difficult, too. Because there is still one fact that cannot be buried. After the death of Janos Skorzeny, he and all of his victims were immediately cremated. Why? Remember the legend? All those who die from the bite of the vampire will return as a vampire, unless destroyed first. So think about it and try to tell yourself, wherever you may be, in the quiet of your home, in the safety of your bed, try to tell yourself it couldn't happen here. Flaming Schwarzkopf Experience. The sound of now. The sound of the future. The sound of yesterday's breakfast. Flaming Schwarzkopf Experience. It's ambient. It's organic. It's not for everyone. Are you brave enough to experience... The Flaming Schwarzkopf Experience. The debut EP, Fly to Orlando, and full-length album, Encased in Glue, are available for purchase and download on Amazon.com. Flaming Schwarzkopf Experience. It's transitronic. Salt of the Two-Headed Space Mules is copyright 2011 by Douglas Arthur. Any other audio contained in this podcast is copyright its respective copyright holders and is used strictly for review and illustration purposes. Join us next week when we hear someone say... Don't look now, baby. But Old Shack's coming back in style. <laughs>